Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. And for the first time in the history of this podcast, I'm not joined by Benjamin Red. Uh, Benjamin Rez is resting this week. I have a great guest with me, Dr. Muna Harb, Professor of Urban Studies and Politics at the American University of Beirut. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nizar. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, I'm an architect by training. Not many people know that, but um, I have a professional background. I'm not a practicing architect, that's obvious. I have two master's degrees on urbanism and urban geography, and my PhD is in political science, hence the intersection of politics and the urban studies bit in my title. I'm very interested in understanding cities and how they're produced by political institutions and actors. And I'm currently also, in addition to my job at AUB, co-leading the Shared Spaces platform at our newly established Beirut Urban Lab, which mm-hmm. hopefully we'll have a full session on at some point with you guys whenever we're ready to do it. Great, great. So we will be talking about public spaces and urban movements today and the intersection between these things and, and politics and, and social issues. Uh, before that, we have a bunch of news to go over. Um, maybe the most remarkable one of this week was a man named Amr Fakhouri returning to Lebanon. This man was part of the South Lebanon army led, led by Antoine Lahad, which was a militia allied with Israeli, the Israeli occupation of, of South Lebanon. So he has been in exile for a long time. And now he returned to Lebanon with apparently no like legal controversies. And then upon his uh, his arrival, a lot, of, a lot of people were outraged. And then the authorities had to take action. Apparently, this man was not only like part of the militia. He was the leader of um, the, the faction that was responsible for the imprisonment of Lebanese prisons of wars in Khiam. Khiam is the most famous, uh, maybe, uh, prison for Lebanese fighters and resistance, resistance fighters who were imprisoned by the Israelis during the war and were only liberated in 2000 with the withdrawal of Israeli troops. And then when uh, when this happened with the liberation, he escaped to Israel. He got the Israeli passport and then from there to, I think, the States and only came back this week. Anyway, as I said, the military uh, judiciary has moved. Prosecutor Peter Germanus has issued a warrant against him and he has been arrested and he has confessed, according to general security, uh, he has confessed to having escaped to Israel in 2000, as we said, and having been a collaborator for a long time. We we expect that he will get like the, the, the verdict of any other collaborator, which he did not expect at all coming back to Lebanon. So he must have received some kind of assurance that he will be okay coming back to Lebanon after being an, an ally of Israel. Uh, but now things have gone really sour for him. Um, and a lot of people are, are, are celebrating that. Speaking of Israel and resistance, uh, there, are, there have been a couple of news by, about Hezbollah this week as well. First of all, the U.S. has imposed new sanctions on four members of Hezbollah, including uh, senior members of the Jihad Council, Ali Karami, Mohammed Haidar, Ibrahim Aqil, and Fuad Shukur. And the latter, Fuad Shukur, is uh, accused by the U.S. of having played a central role in the, in the 1983 attack on U.S. troops in Beirut that killed uh, 241 people, which uh, Hezbollah is blamed or is accused of doing. Uh, this comes after having also imposed sanctions on a small bank called Jamal Trust Bank. We talked about this in the previous episode, whoever is interested in that. But anyway, it's part of a bigger U.S. move to harsher sanctions on Hezbollah and all other military groups that are um, anti-US military groups basically in the region. 
So speaking of Hezbollah, um, the leader Hassan Nasrallah also gave a speech this week, which was the speech that he gives every year at the end of Ashura, on the, on the 10th day of Ashura. Um, nothing big or very special about it, except that he maintained his aggressive rhetoric towards um, the issue with the rules of engagement with Israel, which we talked about that, about in the last episode as well. And he said that there are no lines from now on in how we protect Lebanon. On the side of mobilizing his people, I think I think this was like this is one of the most important uh, moments for Hezbollah in terms of popular mobilization. I don't know if you agree, but I think like Ashura itself is basically this the moment where all you know especially the young men Absolutely. are mobilized and and this the anger it's a, it's of a very strong emotional moment and then the anger of what happened um historically with, with, historically with the the figure that is hussein is translated into things that are happening today it was so explicit with nasrallah saying that like equating khamenei to hussein and saying he is our Hussein today and our leader in the fight against the U.S.-led camp of, which is basically a metaphor for the Yazid camp mm-hmm. back in the days. So it was a very explicit metaphor. It was like a very explicit comparison and basically telling people that the fight that we are so emotionally connected to historically is the one that we are doing today. So yeah, just to comment on that because it's like, I think that's one of the main ways in which Hezbollah maintains support by by mixing and, and, and uh, marrying this symbolism, religious, and religious symbolism and political mobilization. Exactly. Yeah. And when we talked about Amal, uh, the Amal movement as well, in this podcast, we had an episode about it. They also do this by uh, putting Musa Sadr at the center of their Ashura mm-hmm. mobilization. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really it's really interesting to, to just observe that. We had uh, news about the budget, um, the 2020 budget, because things should be happening soon. So Finance Minister Khalil, Ali um, Hassan Khalil, referred the, the bill to the cabinet, his draft uh, proposal for the 2020 budget, and it will be discussed the upcoming week. Uh, it's expected to be more severe in terms of austerity measures than the previous one. According to Hariri, it will be unpopular and it will probably cause demonstrations. Um, this is what uh, he said in the in the previous weeks. So this is what we're expecting, something much more aggressive than, than its predecessor and also something much more timely because the the last one, last budget was approved, you know, long after the year had started. Um, according to the constitution, the budget, the cabinet should send the budget now to parliament uh, in October and the parliament then has till the end of the year to pass it. So uh, like constitutionally, this is how the process should be happening. Uh, let's see if we have more delays like last year or it's uh, it's smoother. But it seems that it, that there's a lot of consensus among political forces that we need to pass uh, an austerity budget this year on time, etc., to be receiving the, the SADR funds. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cabinet, cabinet also will be appointing people to some really major posts in the judiciary uh, this week. They will be appointing state prosecutor ahead of the higher judicial council head of the state Shura Council and director general of the Justice Ministry. And here is one of the moments where you see, you know, political muscles being flexed, how the representation in parliament and in the cabinet will be translated into putting your guy in these major, major posts that have a lot of impact for a long time, usually on the on these institutions. Uh, so now the main power is the FPM, especially that custom has it that many of these posts are reserved to Christian um, candidates or Maronite candidates. So the FPM will have like the most leverage in them. And finally, um, concerning the border talks, which we had an episode about recently, uh, there is no advancement, but uh, there is an interesting story that was published um, in the Daily Star after 
the the newly appointed U.S. Assistant State Secretary for uh, Near Eastern Affairs, David Schenker. He had a session with journalists and he was discussing this uh, negotiations between Lebanon and Israel about the the border and the sea border, etc. And it was striking how really indifferent he was towards it, like the, the kind of the the arrogant attitude, but also the attitude where basically saying, Lebanon, you have to do this. If you don't do it, you know, you're screwed. I don't care. And I'm just going to read a quote. <laughs> we really have to read this quote because it's just fascinating. He says, I mean, I want to make it so that you can enter into negotiations with your neighbors. It would be great if you did, but if you don't, I'm, go- I'm going to go back home and eat dinner. It's not going to keep me awake. So this is Schenker making his first impression on on <laughs> Lebanon. <laughs> Not a great one, I can say. Um, but, you know, when we see it in line with the visit of Secretary of State Pompeo and his language, it there's seems that the Trump... Yeah, there's a pattern. It's, the Trump administration is obviously extremely pro-Israel, extremely aggressive on this. But at the same time, it's um, it has this arrogant uh, attitude. And I think it's just a lack of... I don't think it's smart at all to have this kind of diplomatic attitude. So mm-hmm. maybe it's just they're just putting the wrong people in these posts. So that's it for the news this week, um, the major news. Let's go to the main discussion, the main topic for our episode, which is public spaces and urban movements. You know a lot about this. Let's try to get as much as we can from you in this episode. But basically, whoever lives in Beirut or has been to Beirut notices that there is a problem with public spaces. Uh, there is a, probably a crisis of public spaces in Beirut. Um, you don't see a lot of sp- spaces that you can just casually you know, uh, use, like parks, etc., or um, spaces that attract you to, you know, to use them in the city. And uh, also it feels a bit like a concrete mess that is a bit suffocating, etc. So do we have a, like a crisis of public spaces in Beirut, or how mm. do you see it? Well, the short answer is yes and no, we do and we don't because um, it's not the quantity of public spaces that's the problem, especially if we understand public spaces to include also streets and sidewalks and open spaces, not necessarily parks and gardens. We are a city that lives a lot outdoors. We have a strong legacy historically of using the streets as public space. And we have a lot of ambiguity between what is public and private, which makes also private spaces sometimes used for public ends. So that's where I would say it's not that we don't have enough public spaces, but our public spaces are not managed well enough for people to use them as much as they'd like to use them, perhaps. Some public spaces are quite interesting. We all know the Corniche, and immediately when we talk about public spaces in Beirut, the image that comes is that of the Corniche and the sea. We have gardens in the city as well, but we don't have enough spaces where people could meet freely without worrying about issues related to safety, to to comfort, to harassment. So these are issues that relate a lot to that public space that would make some people say we don't have public space in Beirut. We can unpack that as we move ahead. But there is uh, some kind of historical pattern of like shrinking the, those spaces in the, in the city, right? Mm. Harsh Beirut used to be much, much bigger than it is today, which right. is basically the only real park in Beirut. Other mm-hmm. parks are very small. They're more, small, they're more like gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it feels that after the civil, after the end of the civil war with the reconstruction and during the civil war, the random construction that happened, there has been the shrinking of the space, right? Absolutely. And if you look at the seacoast of the city, this is also a public space that shrunk enormously and got privatized. 
space has also got securitized and militarized. So we have a lot of public spaces that are owned by municipal authorities, by public agencies that are sealed and that you cannot access. So Harsh Beirut was like that for long years for uh, the justification of waiting for the trees to grow. And then it was a justification of like, we're worried of having a public space for people to meet in and people are not uh, able to behave well in public space and it could lead to uh, behavior that is uncontrollable. And then uh, after a lot of lobbying by activists, it finally opened and we see that it's actually fine. People are not killing each other in the park. So yes, public spaces historically were more numerous. The city grew enormously. It's urbanized a lot. It attracted a lot of people from outside of the city to find jobs. Informal settlements and neighborhoods grew. We have more and more migrants and refugees in the city, even after the war. So the spaces where people could go and spend their free time were less and less and are currently more and more used. In that sense, yes, there has been an increasing, uh, I would say, reduction, shrinking of public space and their uh, good management that makes people think less about going there. But how do we measure this? You know, how do we uh, do we have some quantitative measures about open and public and green spaces? Yeah, there are standards that are produced by international organizations. For instance, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has a measure of uh, public green open space per capita. Mm -hmm. And uh, the recommended average is around ranges between 8 and 10 square meters per capita for Mm -hmm. cities. In Lebanon, a calculation that is not verified places that number at less than one square meter per capita in Beirut. So we see that we are way below the numbers that are... one-tenth of the the recommended average. Yes. And this is where you do feel that there is not enough public space uh, for people to use, although perhaps the square meters are available, but they're not dedicated for public usage. I'm sure that would be ha- that would have a lot of effects as well on the population that's living in. I mean, this 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 big difference is not a matter of numbers only, right? Absolutely, it's also very qualitative and subjective. I mean, we all know that living in a dense city and dense streets with a lot of traffic like Be- Beirut, you long to have a small space where you can just have your eye wander on a horizon or surround yourself by greenery and just breathe, even for certain. For close minutes, like a cleaner air that's related to a, a tree or nature. And uh, it's been proven that there's a very strong association between um, uh, mental health and even public health and public space, that people need to have that portion of green open space in the city to take a break from work, from dense concrete environments, from um, from traffic and from air pollution. I mean, green spaces also contribute to decarbonize the air. And there are increasingly now attempts in some cities to plant more trees, to oxygenate it more. We're very far from that. So it seems like a a pretty, you know, dark situation or like gray situation Mm. to use the color of uh, concrete. (laughs) Um, Who's to blame? How did we get there? Well, it's a collection of urban policies that led us there that are quite old. So they date uh, back to even pre-war. It's um, a policy also of no policy of not looking at public space and not thinking about the city in terms of urban planning and securing these public spaces uh, and allowing real estate speculation to take over and not dedicating spaces for public usage. So this would be the responsibility of uh, the urban planning agencies, so direct 
the people who are in charge of having a new master plan for the city. So the Director General for Urban Planning, which is in the Ministry of Public Works, of the Municipality of Beirut, and of uh, decision makers in the Council for Development and Reconstruction who can also push in that direction. This is also very closely related to transportation policies or lack of transportation policies. We don't have a traffic, I mean, we have traffic management policy, but it's not being implemented properly. We don't have a public transportation system that's efficient enough for people to opt to leave their cars at home and not to take them to work. That increases pressure on streets and public space and makes the public space surrounded by cars and by uh, car pollution and much less interesting to spend time in or much less uh, conducive for people to go and stay there. We don't have uh, uh, policies for planting green trees, for increasing the green fabric in the city. So that also doesn't help. To actually have a functioning public space or a network of public spaces that operate together that would push people to walk in the city, you need a a planning policy that relates to mobility, land use, and to public space. All these are very closely connected, and we have none of that happening. So uh, a lot of responsibility is on on the public sector and not investing sufficiently in that. Yeah, I see that when I when I look at Beirut, I feel like the only transport that is being actually focused on is that connecting Beirut to other places. Like there are these, you know, main roads and highways mm-hmm. and bridges yeah. that make sure that you get from the airport to downtown in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Great for, for tourists. But then like most of the, the, the transport within the city is is just left to the most chaotic form of like mm-hmm. of market action, which is basically each to his own car. You know, every person, every taxi yeah. driver with his own car, mm-hmm. every bus driver with his own bus, mm-hmm. nothing planned, etc. And it makes me feel like it has a major contribution to how people use and approach the city. Because if you, if the city is organized this way, you just want to get to work and then get out of it as fast as you can because mm-hmm. you want to breathe, as you said, you know, or you just you can't handle this mess. Or that, or you go to specific places that you feel comfortable in, but in general, the city is not like is not welcoming, right? Absolutely, it doesn't have that. I completely agree. And this highway engineering approach to post-war reconstruction is very specific uh, to also a um, planning approach that favored the car and vehicles, private transportation, and big um, landmarks in the city. So we want to connect the airport to downtown Beirut. That was a priority. Mm-hmm. We want also to bypass poor areas. So we make sure that the highway bypasses very quickly Dahia and the south of Beirut so we don't even get to see it or exit there. There and uh, see poverty. So we want to avoid that because we chose to favor a global touristic city as a model of reconstruction. We did not choose to invest instead in, in a very different system of connectivity with the private car or public transportation that would favor pedestrians and soft mobility. Now, in recent years, there has been a a policy to change that, and the municipality of Beirut uh, commissioned a French urban agency to uh, propose a different transportation and um, a different mobility and public space plan for the city. And a very interesting study was conducted by Ia Yurif called the Plan de Développement Doux, or referred to as Les Ondous, 
um, in common language that proposes an alternative to this model of growth, which is much more uh, people-centered and which favors pedestrianization and soft mobility modes of transportation. And the study is available online and people can check it and it's ready to be approved and executed. It's been in the drawers since the previous uh, municipal council, so for more than five, six years now, and it's not clear why it's not being implemented. It has a very interesting uh, pilot test to launch it that would link uh, Hirsch Beirut to downtown Beirut through Damascus Street and would increase the sidewalks and the pedestrian connection between these two important poles mm-hmm. of the city and encourage people to walk much more uh, and to park their cars and to use soft mobility transportation to move from one place to the other. So yes, the solution to what you were explaining earlier about that suffocation of getting into the city and wanting to exit as soon as possible and get to a safe, comfortable bubble that is most of the time not a public space, mm-hmm. would be to uh, think about uh, mobility in ways where these half a million car, I think there are even more, that get into the city every morning mm-hmm. from the south, from the east, and from the north, would actually park at the edges of the city. And then to move into your destination, you would up to go into small public transportation buses and then spend much more time in public space for your breaks before you take your car and go home. So mm-hmm. this is the model that a lot of cities are adopting abroad and that could work in Lebanon. We even have spaces allocated that could uh, function as such. So traffic mm-hmm. so- solutions exist, but it's the political will to want to think about this relationally between mobility, public transportation and land use and housing as well. It's a very big urban planning, I would say, equation that should be put in place, that can be put in place, actually. It seems that, you know, the municipality or the, which is the authority responsible for urban governance is the main side. Like it's, it's basically uh, the, the, the lack of good policies mm-hmm. or the lack of willingness to implement these policies, even when they exist, as you explained, is basically the main reason. And another thing that you touched on now is the, the paradigm of development in in post-war Lebanon, uh, mm. the reconstruction project. And here is the most fascinating example is Solidaire, mm-hmm. uh, the company that was created to um, to acquire basically downtown Beirut, mm-hmm. the central district, and transform it into this mini European yeah. tourist attraction finance. A scandal. global city. Yeah, a global mm. uh, center. And its effects are beyond like, we talked about it a bit in, in the in the episode on Rafi Hariri, one of the episodes on mm. historical figures. Mm. But we were talking about this before the episode, uh, about the, the aspect of, you know, the commodification of space. Mm-hmm. Turning this central hub of the city, uh, which had a lot of popular uh, meaning, into a place where it's mostly about land's value, right? Absolutely. This is what we call, I mean, the key term for it is gentrification. It's mainly that you take the land and you raise its real estate value. So the way Solidaire did it is by making it very pretty. So the urban heritage got uh, refurbished, uh, public spaces got aesthetized to to a scale of where you cannot touch them and they become very much associated to real estate exchange value. Mm -hmm. So the use value of that space is um, almost nullified and it becomes Mm -hmm. about how I can increase the real estate value of that square meter by making it reach a certain standard of urban design and urban design is translated into an urban heritage and, and, and a beautiful public space. So they museumified 
the downtown of Beirut. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very pretty museum, a showcase, actually. So a lot of people come and take pictures next to it. And you can see that the brides go and, you know, newlyweds go and take pictures next to it. It's almost like a backdrop. It's Mm -hmm. not a lift space where people go and meet and buy and exchange like it used to be when it used to exist. But it's very much a very pretty vitrine of these beautiful French mandate buildings and these paved roads and these nice gardens that surround them. So that approach to public space sent a very strong message in the market, in the real estate market, even outside uh, central Beirut, that this is a good model to speculate. And uh, Beirut, I mean, has been always a a city where real estate speculation is very high, Mm -hmm. is even before the the civil war. But when you see that association between commodifying urban heritage and commodifying public space, that message cut across all of the city. And we had more and more of multiplication of urban heritage buildings that become restaurants, fancy restaurants or boutique hotels. So they're associated with a certain type of practice and use and users. Mm -hmm. And buildings uh, adopt that model of secured private residences with gates, nice gardens and fences that you cannot cross and that are secured by private security. And the city became more and more, I would say, divided by according to this model, with these gated communities and high-end towers or small compounds, these fancy restaurants in, in the Paris central areas of Beirut, these high-end practices that relate to public space that is empty, but that is pretty to look at and to get a photograph next to, and the rest of the city, which, which has a much more organic fabric, much more vibrant, and that is much more messy and much more full of contradictions, which is more real, authentic way through which the city exists with its public spaces that are very ambiguous and that are in the street, on a sidewalk, in an alley, which was the trademark of, I would say, the signpost of central Beirut before Solidaire came and and redesigned it into that fancy designed urban center. So it seems to me that there's intersection of market and, and, and public forces that kind of lead to this kind of development, a paradigm that is basically uh, fueled by, you know, finance capitalism Mm -hmm. to a great extent or uh, real estate capitalism. But to talk a bit about like the actual social consequences of it, Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned how there are two different worlds within the city, within the the same city. Mm -hmm. Uh, If when you go to downtown, this is this is the kind of public spaces that you found spaces that, you know, you feel guilty if you step on the the bench or whatever. And then when you go to other areas, it's a completely different mm-hmm. uh, setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- does does this kind of shrinking of public spaces or dif- this paradigm and, and the approach to public spaces cause social segregation, in your opinion? How does it like divide society on lines or exacerbate existing lines of division? Yeah, absolutely. Both social and spatial segregation are exacerbated by these types of urban policies because people will tend to stay where they're more comfortable and will tend not to go to discover other places if they're not there to discover. Like other cities that got that got impacted by gentrification and neoliberal real estate development, uh, we have a lot of exclusion and segregation in Beirut and people even speak about fragmentation of the city as a concept. So we're in a situation where we have public spaces that are freely accessible to all, but they're not used by all at all times. And I can develop that in a little bit. And then you have public spaces that are sealed off and that are 
not allowed to be accessed. And then you have semi-private spaces that function as public spaces in shopping malls and, and resorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the sea or in private clubs. So depending on class, you would go to certain place and not to another because you'd like to be surrounded by people who are like you, which is a, a social positioning that we all do depending on can, where can we come from. Can you give an example about that? Well, um, the Corniche is a very good example of a place that's open to all, but that's not practiced by all at the same time. So you have in the early morning hours a certain group of population that uses it and that is very conscious that this is the only time where they want to use it because the Corniche, according to what they say, changes as the day goes. So they don't want to be around migrants and poor people in in the evenings or during weekends. So they would avoid such spaces and go to other spaces where they feel more secure and safe or Mm. where they simply don't want to see poverty because uh, when you belong to a certain middle or upper income class, poverty is not something you'd like to, you'd like to make it more invisible Mm. and deny its existence. And the city is very much, uh, operates very well according to this, that highway that connects the airport to downtown Beirut has a very specific function. Exactly. So, uh, and other highways in the city, they bypass certain neighborhoods and they connect other neighborhoods. There's a lot of inequality in that sense. And middle classes are much more comfortable going to shopping centers, like we see multiplying in the city from city center to city mall to the ABC. And even that is classed within it. So certain people can go to city center and city mall, but not to ABC, even if it's to just walk around, have a cheap coffee somewhere. I mean, it's not cheap, but it's still mm-hmm. uh, it's still a small consumption. And we see that public space in that sense becomes equated with a consumer habit mm-hmm. and rather than with a freely accessed public space, which is the prime definition of what is a public yeah, this, space. This, I think, is like one of the m- the clearest differences between uh, living in Beirut and living in a typical European city, mm-hmm. right? You don't have uh, access to public spaces where you don't have to consume. Mm. Every time you have to, I have to go out with my friends, I have to be consuming, I have to be buying things. Yeah. Actually, which is also, also you know, bad for people's health, like, we shouldn't be drinking and eating all the time. We can just be sitting in a park or just sitting yeah. in a place where you don't have to consume. But this also has to do with your own positionality and that of your friends and mine too. I mean, there are parks that I could go and sit in, but I don't do it because I don't feel comfortable enough. I mean, from my positionality as a mom or as a mother, it's very rare for me to consider going to a park like Sanaya or Sufi with my kids or to Harish Beirut. For me, it's like tedious to want to go there. I'm not sure who am I going to encounter, Mm -hmm. if my kids are going to be playing with someone like them or not. So uh, there's a very strong class consciousness also where these public spaces that exist are associated with a class that I might not be comfortable interacting with. And uh, if you talk to people, this is commonly what they would say. the, The narrative would even develop to become one of fear. And especially now with refugees in the city, that it would equate these public spaces with, mm-hmm. with Syrian refugees. Before that, it was with migrant workers that I would I don't want to see these people. The mm-hmm. city is not mine anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is why, where being in a in a secured space that uh, where I can see people who are like me feels like a better choice. So there is this 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 class aspect of it. Mm-hmm. There's also the gender aspect that we see when you know when there are no public spaces apart from the sidewalks mostly and in and, and the popular neighborhoods, then, you know, the way that people practice this or use this public space is basically old men or young, sometimes young mm. men after work, 
putting their plastic chairs on the sidewalk and basically yeah. claiming it, right? Owning the, the Yeah, that's the a, that's a very interesting paradox in Beirut's public spaces. That's uh, very romanticized, especially by uh, by the gaze of, uh, I would say, Western researchers who come and study the city. They like that appropriation of space because it qualifies it as an appropriation of space. This is where the city becomes yours. You're able to appropriate that street or sidewalk by making it yours. But at the same time, it has a very strong paradox in it because it excludes many others. And there's a violence in this appropriation because of its this exclusion and its domination by men and sometimes by strong men who would prevent certain practices from happening in the street. And uh, an example I often give when I speak about this to my student is uh, a space that's very close to my home that's completely appropriated by these strong men. And I have to walk there every day and I don't feel comfortable enough to walk next to these chairs, these plastic chairs and these tables and to have to pass by these men and perhaps hear a comment or hear or be looked at in a certain way. And to avoid that, I have to cross the street and continue. And it's the experience of many uh, young women in, in Beirut that have to all the time be very careful about that gaze or that potential violent harassment that could happen in the streets of Beirut. And that we, when we look at these spatial practices and mm-hmm. celebrate them as being a demonstration of the ability of Beirut to be open to appropriation, we forget all about that potential violence that's embedded in that. So I do completely agree with that. Although sometimes these eyes on the street, because they're often eyes on the street, these men, they control the, their mm. little corner. They uh, are also monitoring who comes and who goes. There's a sense of community watch mm. that mm. sometimes has a, an interesting role in protecting the community in that neighborhood. And that could be interesting to document and work with if you want to think more about how to to subvert it in, in a more collective, shared way mm. and inclusive way, rather than mm. making it just exclusive to these strong men. Exactly. I, I feel exactly what you're saying. When I'm walking in, in, in uh, neighborhoods that I'm familiar with, I feel this, uh, or I, I have this idea in the back of my mind that if something happens, you know, these people are watching, mm. they, they, they kind of protect, you know. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when it comes to um, being different or like uh, not conforming to gender norms, uh, gender, mm-hmm. gender identity, your gender identity uh, or, or sexuality being, uh, identity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Your sexual orientation, like expressing your sexuality in any mm. way or being a woman that is not ba- basically from the neighborhood, you will have a very different experience. So mm-hmm. it's, a, as you said, it's, a, it's an interesting Double-edged uh, sword paradox. somewhere, yeah. We can talk, I mean, forever about the manifestations, social manifestations of, mm-hmm. of public spaces and the, the political significance of them. But before like wrapping up this episode, I want to like discuss with you a bit urban activism mm-hmm. uh, because you've been involved in several projects and you study them. So just like tell us just a bit about how public spaces became the center of activism in Beirut mostly and in Lebanon recently and and maybe just a couple of reflections on those on those attempts yeah it's a long story and it begins with actually solidaire so first activists uh, protesting against what we discussed solidaire was doing with the city but i'll skip that part and focus more on the new activists i would say efforts that are really interesting experiments and in how we could lobby for more or better public spaces in the city 
I would place the beginning with the campaign that happened to uh, cancel the highway that was supposed to cut across Marim Khail, the Fuad Boutros Highway, which was a very interesting initiative taken by um, young urban activists who allied with uh, transportation planners and urban designers to propose a counter project for the highway, a park by the name of Fuad Boutros, and found a loophole and requested an environmental impact assessment from the municipality, which was the operator of the project and lobbied for this EIA to take place. And based on its results, they managed to uh, to show that the highway will not solve the traffic problem as it was claimed. The project was put to a halt. We still don't have a park in, um, in Marim Khail, but at least we don't have the highway. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after, there was uh, the beginning of the mobilization around the opening of, of uh, Hirsh Beirut by Nahnu. And, um, Which had been closed for a long time, right? Yeah, since, uh, I mean... It was uh, the the trees were burned during the civil war, and then there was a fund that helped replant the trees, mm-hmm. and then the the Harish was supposed to open, but it was never being opened. And then Nahnu started lobbying very systematically for that. It took years to reach to that uh, decision of the governor at the time. There was a policy window that made the decision happen. I was actually working at the organization back then. Really? And we did like the, the opening of Harsh Beirut, yeah. like, a festival, etc. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge win in that and in, in these struggles that where we, you feel that advocacy, even if it would take you years of efforts, would lead to to the op- reopening of Harsh Beirut. They started at the, be- at the beginning opening it once a week, if I remember, and then it was more regularly with the volunteers that Nahnu had secured. And then the third campaign, which I think was very interesting also was the one for uh, Delhi to protect Delhi from being developed into a tourist resort. And Delhi is? Delhi is the uh, space uh, which is uh, just down from, I mean, next to Raushi, to the Pigeon Rocks. So it's uh, that uh, very large space by the sea where people actually can cross across the uh, Corniche and walk down towards mm-hmm. the sea. And it's a space that's largely used by um, by people uh, during the weekends. And this is where the Kurdish community also celebrates the Nowruz every year. It's very also linked to practices by uh, Beiruti population that go back to years. It was very well documented by public works. So um, at the time, they were not named by public works, but uh, who were really the engine behind this mobilization. So these to name, I would say the flagship really urban activists that, that, that had actions on these public spaces and led to more consciousness about how we can regain or protect at least the existing public spaces in the city. Uh, and I think like another major initiative was Beirut Medinati, right? In 2016, mm-hmm. there was this big campaign for the municipal elections in Beirut. Yeah. It was maybe the first time that civil society, so-called civil society or independent actors mm-hmm. come together and say, let's win the municipal, municipal elections. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, I was just helping a bit. I didn't have a major responsibility in it, but I was. it was the first time that I see a lot of people talking about the municipality in the first place, mm-hmm. right? It was right. never a public discussion theme, you know, topic, mm. nothing that people discuss. But what what was fascinating is that a lot of people were willing to vote, you know, mm. uh, with, uh, it was a successful campaign, but to get 40% of the vote. 32 32? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I had my numbers exaggerated. But to, to get a significant percentage of the vote facing a list with all of the major parties mm-hmm. was a major thing, right? Mm-hmm. It was an important uh, 
achievement uh, like i would like to hear like four years later or three years later i would like to hear your you know your thoughts mm. on that experience uh, specifically before we wrap up because it's it's maybe one of the um, uh, the only examples where you know we had people saying we're not only going to be technical experts and you know consultants to to municipal to the municipality or to the mm. local government mm. we're actually taking over mm-hmm. So urban activists were a big part of Beirut Madinati. So Beirut Madinati brought several coalitions together, but the urban activists were an important group in there. So all the people who worked on Fuad Boutra's campaign, daily campaign, uh, Nahnu um, activists were part of that reflection of how will we campaign to take back the municipality. There was also a very strong awareness that enough is enough, that we know what to do. Let's just do it. We're tired of working from the fringes through the campaign. Through the campaigns, we want to go in and do the work like it's supposed to be done through urban policies that are organized, planned, related to each other. So that that bring mobility and public space together, land use and housing together, because it's all related. We cannot just work on one sector. But we chose, I would say, it was a very strong uh, choice to focus on open space, public space, a better city, a better managed city as an electoral strategy, mm-hmm. rather than work on housing or uh, other, um, I would say, contentious topics. Public space seemed to be the most common ground that mm. would rally the largest uh, strands of people possible across divisions. So across religious, economic, class divisions that we were talking about. And I think, I mean, I find this interesting and controversial, right? Obviously, as as, as a clearly left-minded person, I would think of, you know, th- things like economic justice and the right to the city mm-hmm. as a main part of mobilizing in the urban space, right? Mm-hmm. Because some people are clearly disadvantaged and other are, others are winning. And maybe some people who were very excited about the public spaces, are also excited about gentrifying some areas in Beirut that are uh, being kind of um, or moving to areas that are historically working class and making them more hipster and nicer for them to be living in, etc. So I think like there's always you have to as a campaign, you have to navigate these interests. Mm -hmm. But it was clear that Beirut Medinity was basically focusing on one aspect, which is let's get the technocrats in power on the municipal level and let's create a beautiful city rather than activate tensions and and, and, and mobilization resources that already exist with people being angry against, you know, the new rent laws, Mm -hmm. etc. Yeah, again, that was an electoral strategy. And I think if you understand public space through its land value, you would understand better the linkages we, we were thinking about in relation to political change. So... If we understand public space, like I was explaining, through its social value and its use value, not its exchange value, the link to politics is very clear to me. So I could advocate for more public space and choose to focus on the aesthetics of it or the or the need of it for public health and mental health and even economic growth if it, if it would allow me to rally priv- private sector people with me. But I know that if I take the municipality, the way I will manage public spaces for it to be much more in favor of a social inclusive value that would be open to all rather than uh, reduce it as solidarity to its exchange value. So I would say it's a very subtle, and we go back to that probably that double-edged sword of the public space, Mm -hmm. of recognizing it and working within it, that making sure that we're celebrating the capacity of public space to be 
to be appropriated, but making sure it's not appropriated by one group of people at the expense of others. It's very hard in the campaign to explain this, mm. but I would say the, the rationale behind it, the um, ideology behind it is one that is much more about social justice and inclusion and equity and livability. But we chose to focus on livability rather than the other dimensions, which might be more antagonizing to certain mm-hmm. people, which may be fearful whereas livability is a common ground for the many. I see. So that was, I would say, an electoral strategy, much more than uh, an ideological choice. So I guess we'll see how um, maybe this strategy will be reevaluated for the future elections. We have actually, which is very interesting, we have municipal elections and parliamentary elections at the same time, Mm. in the same year, uh, next time, which is very scary. What's going to happen to the activists? My God, they will collapse. Exactly, because (laughs) the same people were working in Beirut Medina and then with the the campaigns, but also because parliamentary elections mobilize people on, Mm. you know, sectarian grounds Mm -hmm. and geographical grounds, etc. So it will be maybe more difficult for Mm. us as independent activists to mobilize. But we can... We will have another episode, I'm mm-hmm. sure, about this, about uh, urban mobilization and, and the municipal elections and maybe Beirut Medinati specifically. Um, we can talk about this forever, but for now we have to end. It was so good to have you here on this yeah. show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And um, from now on, now on, you're a friend of the show and we will be happy to have you again. Thank you. <laughs> so we'll be back next week with another episode about another topic. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. And uh, I'm Mona Harib. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.